to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. News One, The Griot, The Root, Ebony, and The Voice. Today we'll begin with an article titled, Who is Prince Asante Sefa Okoye, A-S-A-N-T-E-S-E-F-A-B-O-A-K-Y-E. And what is his mission with water polo in Ghana? Written by Brianna Sharp, S-H-A-R-P-E, April 17, 2023. Prince Asante Sefa Okoye a former water polo pro player, is on a mission to promote diversity in the sport by introducing it to Ghana. Ashante, who grew up in Coronado, California, and is of Ghanaian descent, introduced water polo to a local school in Ghana in 2018. Today, he oversees a seven-team national league that operates under the Awutu A-W-U-T-U, Winton Water Polo Club, according to an interview with Olympics.com. Sefa Bakoye, ultimate goal is to create the first ever all-black water polo team to compete at the Olympics. He hopes that his efforts will inspire more black Africans to take up aquatic sports and break down the social stigma that surrounds swimming. My reality of being this foreign player as a minority player is beginning to wash away with this new Black Star Polo Initiative, the former American pro water polo player said in an interview with the Olympics.com from Accra. Despite being an African-American player himself, Asante has often found himself to be the only player of color in water polo pool. He believes that water sports have cultural connections that keep Black Africans away from participating in aquatic sports. Overcoming this fear and the pillars that have kept Black Africans away from water sports is essential to the success of his initiative. Swimming is not widely practiced in Ghana, despite a quarter of the country's 32 million people living along the 550-kilometer coastline. Asante recalls that whenever he trained in deep waters, it sparked panic as most locals are terrified of swimming in the ocean or open water. The fear is due to the possibility of drowning in the Gulf of Guinea, which is part of the eastern tropical Atlantic Ocean, known for its strong and dangerous rip currents. Asante has been working to change this perception by helping Ghanaians overcome the stigma around water. He hopes to introduce the sport to more African communities and inspire young Black Africans to pursue water sports. Asante's initiative has already sparked the promotion of the aquatic discipline in Africa. To date, only two African countries, South Africa and Egypt, have had the opportunity to field men's water polo teams at the Olympics. With Asante's efforts, more African nations 
could participate in future water polo competitions. Asante's program has not been without challenges, however. Water polo is a difficult sport and it has been challenging to introduce it to Ghana and other African communities. Asante has had to overcome systematic oppression, cultural fears, and colonial tools that have kept Black Africans away from water sports. Despite the challenges, Asante remains optimistic about the future of water polo in Africa. His goal is to see more African athletes on the main stage for water polo and inspire young Black Africans to pursue aquatic sports. Asante's drive is an excellent example of how sports can bring people together while also promoting diversity and inclusion in the Olympics. This article is titled, Who is Prince Asante Sefa Okoye? And what is his mission with water polo in Ghana? Written by Brianna Sharp, News 1, April 17, 2023. The next article is titled, Just in Time for Summer Cookouts, Tabitha Brown Launches New McCormick Seasoning Line. Written by Stephanie Holland, April 18, 2023. If the way to our hearts is through our stomachs, then vegan and lifestyle creator Tabitha Brown has figured out how to unite the world with love. The social media influencer is continuing her food takeover with the latest entries in the McCormick by Tabitha Brown collection. The Emmy nominee is releasing five new spice blends, including Like Sweet, Like Smoky All-Purpose, Very Good Garlic, all-purpose, taco business, burger business, and saute business seasonings. The Tab Time host spoke with The Root about how she developed her latest products. Tabitha previously worked with McCormick on her sunshine seasoning. She said she wanted to release that one first because we were coming out of a dark time and I felt like people needed a little sunshine and they needed to feel like they had vacation in a bottle. Now she's ready for a full line of spices with her unique touch. She was involved in every step of the development process, working alongside McCormick to make sure her signature Tabitha style was in every seasoning. I know what I like, and I know what I cook with all the time. I know I'm always grabbing garlic. I know I'm always grabbing a little bit of cumin. I'm always grabbing paprika, Brown told The Root. Instead of having all these different bottles, if I could just put it in one, how can I do that? And that's the way I came up with what I want in it. It's a collaborative effort with McCormick, and we get into the lab, we taste it together, we add a little bit more, take a little bit out. It's really like science, but it's so fun because it's food. For Brown, it was essential that the ideas and flavor combinations be her own. She wasn't looking for something that just had her name on it. She wanted it to focus on her food, voice, and vision. I've been trying to develop my own seasonings for so long. Working with McCormick, who I love because they embrace me, she said. They allow me to be completely me. We jump into developing products and our seasonings together. They really let me get into the lab, into the kitchen, and we work it out together. 
All of Brown's seasonings are salt-free, which means you can really layer the flavors properly without worrying about how your recipe is going to turn out. I try to cook the majority of my food salt-free because of all the ailments that are in our families, knowing that we don't need a lot of salt and we can still have delicious food, Brown said. It's what my grandma told me and taught me very early in life. She said, when you go to the restaurants, where do you see the salt and pepper? It's always on the table. It didn't always belong in the kitchen or in your pockets. So I always tell people, when you layer your food with flavor, we can achieve delicious food and keep it healthy. If you're a fan of Tabitha, you know how much she loves garlic. With that in mind, it's no surprise that she made sure the very good garlic all-purpose seasoning would take that flavor to the next level. It's all the flavors of garlic. It's just so layered with garlic, you can't even get enough, she said. From pastas to pizza, you can add it to your creamy sauce, or you can roast some veggies. The garlic lovers would definitely love this one. Tabitha has a successful clothing and lifestyle line at Target, a vegan hair care line, and an Emmy-nominated children's show and her own line of seasonings. She really is using positivity as fuel to get stuff done. These new McCormick by Tabitha Brown seasonings will be available in stores this spring and summer. This article is titled, Just in Time for Summer Cookouts, Tabitha Brown Launches New McCormick Seasoning Line, written by Stephanie Holland, The Root, April 18th, 2023. The next article is titled, Is Vice President Kamala Harris Having a Moment with Black Voters? Written by Garen Keith Gaynor, G-E-R-R-E-N. The role of Vice President Kamala Harris has been the subject of political fodder, since the day she took office. Many praise Harris for her historic role as the first Black, first woman, and first South Asian vice president in the United States, and her work to date. Others are critical in dissecting the former California U.S. Senator's role and whether or not she is an effective enough vice president. Examining Harris's role as it relates to the White House's ability to reach Black communities, political scientist and Forum University president Christina M. Greer noted in a previous interview with the Grio, Kamala Harris was missing for a lot of Black people for a very long time, and they were wondering what she was doing and what she was being utilized to do. While Harris is leading the White House's response on broader issues like reproductive rights, abortion, and clean energy, the vice president is also a clear proxy for the Biden-Harris administration in black spaces and on key issues like racial justice, something of particular notice in recent months. On Friday, the vice president delivered a speech at Al Sharpton's annual National Action Network convention in New York City where Harris condemned Republican extremists for attacking hard-won freedoms like voting and LGBTQ plus 
rights and banning black history books as an attempt to erase America's full history. During her remarks, she notably garnered applause and laughter from the mostly black audience when she used a phrase known well in the black community, don't fall for the okie dokie. Harris's speech at NAN, NAN, comes after back-to-back outreach efforts by the White House to black communities who played a crucial role in the election of President Joe Biden and his vice president, and will be just as crucial as the administration gears up for a soon-to-be-announced 2024 re-election campaign. Political commentator Reese Colbert, R-E-E-C-I-E-C-O-L-B-E-R-T, told the Griot that while Harris doesn't always win the day on Twitter or on Instagram among critics on social media, when it comes to the voters, I think her presence is undeniably an asset to the ticket. Colbert praised the vice president's recent and unexpected trip to Nashville, Tennessee, just hours after Republicans expelled two young black state lawmakers for joining thousands of demonstrators inside the state capitol to protest gun violence. While on the ground, Harris met with the Tennessee leaders and delivered a fiery speech at Fisk University. That, she declared, is not democracy. Colbert, who also hosts the Reese Colbert Show, on Sirius XM, said it was an excellent agility on the part of Harris and her office to quickly travel to Nashville. The gravity of the situation with what we saw, fascist, racist behavior from the Republicans, really demanded a quick turnaround in a response, she said. As for the speech itself, Harris did not read from a teleprompter, something Colbert contended made the vice president's remark appear incredibly authentic. She said it reminded her of Harris's standout moments as a U.S. senator. She didn't take it as slow as she has been doing as vice president. It was much more from the heart and much more forceful, said Colbert, who noted Harris had been a little toned down and muted in some of her responses over the last two years. Activist Melanie Campbell also gave Harris high marks for her Tennessee speech, telling the Griot it was a great utilization of the bully pulpit so that America knows what's going on in Tennessee and could happen to a town near you. Campbell, who serves as head of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation, and its Black Women's Roundtable, said the vice president's speech appeared well-received by young people, including those of her staff. Another Harris speech that garnered approval from Black leaders was her remarks at the funeral of Tyree Nichols in February. Nichols, a Black man, was beaten to death by Memphis police during a traffic stop. Harris passionately assailed the repeated occurrence of deadly police encounters with black citizens and called on Congress to pass the long-sought George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. And in March, Harris garnered significant press on her trip to Africa 
after delivering an emotional speech in Accra, Ghana, about the impacts of the transatlantic slave trade. Before her remarks, she had toured a slave castle where enslaved Africans were held before they were loaded onto ships and sold in the Americas. The horror of what happened here must always be remembered, said Harris. It cannot be denied. It must be taught. History must be learned. Campbell said that while it is not new hearing the vice president deliver such passionate speeches about race, racial justice, and other issues important to the black communities, there is something significant about the sequence of these recent remarks and the current political battles that exist. There are so many attacks coming our way that the role she's playing, it's really resonating, she explained. It was very beneficial for the administration as they move forward with their moving their agenda and going into a presidential election cycle that starts any day now. Colbert said the timing could not be better for Harris, as it is very important that she really gets her swagger going for 2024, because the daggers are out for her. Still, she says, a lot of the negative commentary about the vice president and her absence over the years has been unwarranted. If you look at the historical lens of vice president, she is more prominent, said Colbert, who noted that to date, Harris has done hundreds of events. President Biden has made a point to call it the Biden-Harris administration, she added. I don't recall any other administration making that kind of distinction. Campbell said the Biden-Harris White House shows that they're continuing to stay committed to critical issues, including police reform, voting rights, and abortion. She believes it will yield dividends in the 2024 presidential election. At the end of the day, she said, it is about whether we have a democracy or not. This article was titled, Is Vice President Kamala Harris Having a Moment with Black Voters? Written by Garen Keith Gaynor, The Griot, April 18, 2023. The next article is titled, Biden is Ending the COVID-19 Emergency in May. What does that mean? Written by Jessica Washington, January 31st, 2023. It's no secret that politicians are rushing to declare that the COVID-19 pandemic is behind us. And on Monday, President Joe Biden let it be known that he'll allow two COVID-19 national emergency declarations to expire in May. It's been three years since the pandemic began, and while things have greatly improved, the death tolls are still troubling. According to the New York Times COVID tracker, roughly 500 people die every day from the virus. Now that the emergency declarations are coming to an end, it's worth asking, what will this mean for those of us living in a country where the virus is still a regular presence in our lives? One big change, at-home testing. Under the current public health emergency, insurance companies must cover eight free COVID tests a month. 
Once that expires, you may have to start paying out of pocket for tests. So word of advice, you might want to start picking up some COVID tests before your insurance starts handing you the bill. Another significant change, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, is that people without insurance will no longer be able to access free COVID-19 testing, vaccines, or treatment. It's worth noting that Black Americans have a roughly 10.9% uninsured rate, which is higher than that of white Americans. Treating COVID-19 could also become more expensive for everyone, regardless of their insurance status. Depending on what state you live in, insurers won't be required to cover the total costs associated with antiviral treatments. The declaration will also loosen government control over the production of vaccines. And while for now the vaccines will still be covered for people with private insurance, Medicare or Medicaid, the cost of vaccines is expected to skyrocket without government oversight. At the moment, people are not exactly jumping on the new booster shot. According to the Associated Press, only 16% of eligible people have received their booster shot. Uptake is particularly low among Black Americans, and many have blamed the suspension of measures that made vaccines more accessible. It's unclear how ending the emergency declaration will impact people's decisions to get vaccinated. Although it could signal to some that the pandemic is really behind us, it's likely to make it more difficult for people without insurance to get care, a disproportionate number of whom are Black. Of course, Biden's decision to end these protections in May is still not soon enough for Republicans. Republicans in Congress have been demanding an immediate end to these pandemic measures for a while. On Monday, the Republican-controlled House introduced the Pandemic is Over Act, which would end the public health emergency. The Republican bill is not going anywhere under a Biden presidency, but we will have to keep a close eye on how the end of these pandemic measures impacts our recovery. This article is titled, Biden is Ending the COVID-19 Emergency in May. What does that mean? By Jessica Washington, The Root, January 31st, 2023. The next article is titled, To Be World, Jody Turner-Smith on Her Jamaican Roots and Keeping the Culture Alive. Story by Jihan Forbes, J-I-H-A-N. Photos by artist Louise dapper Lou. L-O-U-G-E. I've got a sleeping toddler on my lap, says Jody Turner-Smith. The mood is set before Turner-Smith even gets a chance to press the little green FaceTime icon on the top right corner of her iPhone screen. The actress, who co-stars in Netflix's just-released Murder Mystery 2, texts me from a car en route to a Los Angeles hotel suite to chat before jetting off somewhere wonderful with her three-year-old daughter. Minutes into our conversation, Turner Smith and I are talking about jerk chicken, her favorite Jamaican dish to make. It is really my specialty, she says, but my favorite dish to eat is oxtail. 
the latter is a luxury these days. Oxtail prices have skyrocketed from just over $9 a pound in January 2018 to almost $14. But when the melanin-rich actress was growing up in Petersburg, England, it was the food her mother, her mother's mother, and several mothers before her ate. Turner Smith was born in the UK to Jamaican immigrants who made sure that even in a small English city with few other Black people, she stayed connected to her culture. I lived in a village called Coates, C-O-A-T-E-S, and we were the only Black family there, she says. As Americans, when we imagine Black Brits, we think of London and its vibrant African and Afro-Caribbean populations. Life in Petersburg wasn't quite like that. Growing up, really, the only other Black people I interacted with were mostly my family. Turner Smith's mother, Hilda, whom Turner Smith calls a Jamaican woman through and through, played a key role in bridging the cultural gap, making Jamaican dishes, frequently visiting the islands, maintaining connections with their family abroad. I never felt far from traditions, Turner Smith says. My mother always integrated our Jamaican culture into our lives. She taught us how to cook Jamaican food and was always speaking to my brother and my sister and me in Patois at home. The influence was constantly around me. The influence still flourishes today. Turner Smith's mother lives with her, helping her and her husband, Joshua Jackson, raise their little one. The food, the patois, the music, the stories, they're all present in their home. And Turner Smith already sees how her mother's Jamaicanness is rubbing off on her daughter. She shares that her daughter is already a fan of dance hall artist Spice and that her patois is coming along. She repeats everything my mother says, Turner Smith gushes. Her favorite is, mmm, no sir. The impression I get from talking to the actress is that her mom is truly a force in her life. Like many a Caribbean mother to this day, she pushes Turner Smith to achieve above the high level she's already reached. Her tool of choice? Constructive criticism, of course. My mom came to visit me on set one day. I was doing a scene, and she was there giving me my notes. Turner shares. She was like, you need to bring that Jamaican lady type of aggression into the scene. Not angry, fly off the handle aggression. What she's referring to is far more soulful and potent. It's a kind of aggression that draws you in and makes you want to slowly back away at the same time. You don't want to get on her bad side, but you kind of want to see what would happen if you did, and you will accept the consequences with a smile. Turner Smith redid the take with this energy in mind. Turns out, Mama truly does know best. The director came running over to me and she says, What is that you were thinking about when you did the take? I said, Actually, it was a note from my mother, shares the actress. Turner Smith appears to have inherited her mother's drive for excellence and growth in her craft. In Murder Mystery 2, which hit Netflix on March 31st, we get to see her in a comedic role for the first time. She plays Countess Siku, the ex-fiancé of the Maharaja, who was just kidnapped at his own wedding. Seku has the air of generationally wealthy African 
Oil Harris, who attended boarding school in the UK. Still, you can't take her too seriously because, well, she's also quite ridiculous. Turner Smith appears opposite comedy legends Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler, who play Audrey and Nick, a detective couple with a struggling private investigator business. Indeed, it sounds daunting. Aniston and Sandler have been doing this since Turner Smith was still in primary school. But Turner Smith more than holds her own alongside these seasoned professionals. On Turner Smith's wish list, Jamaica Carnival. In April, Ebony is playing a mass participating in the parade in her beloved Jamaica, and all of the festivals will be captured throughout the month. We chatted about her growing up a first-generation British Jamaican coming to the United States and how she's kept her culture alive at home with her daughter. Ebony, you moved to England to Gaithersburg, Maryland when you were about 10. What was it like coming to the U.S. as a Black person from a non-American culture to a country with such vibrant, different kind of Black culture? Jody Turner-Smith. I think no matter where you're coming from, even if it's a country that is that is wealthy itself, there's still this vision of America, that the streets are paved with gold. I remember being very excited to come here and very interested as to what it would be like. I was also excited about the idea of being in a more diverse place, seeing more black people that I wasn't related to. I was like, that's going to be really cool. My mom definitely had more of a community of Jamaican friends in Maryland than she did when we were in England. But there was also a lot of people who were Asian, Latino, Black. I had a friend from Sri Lanka. It was much more diverse than where I had been living, Ebony. The experience of being Black changes from country to country. Do you think you experienced your Blackness differently when you came to the U.S.? American history is its own thing, and the Black experience in America is very specific. This country was built by Africans, and from the beginning, Black people were excluded from the American dream. That has its own unique patina. In some ways, the experience is different, but in some ways, it's sort of the same. There are nuances to how you're received and embraced, or not embraced, by other people. Ebony. Absolutely. I'd love to talk more about your relationship with your Jamaican culture growing up. Did you visit a lot? What do you remember that experience being like? Actually, when I was very young, I lived in Jamaica for a little bit. My mom had to work in America. She was meant to be there for six months. She didn't stay that long. She was like, absolutely not. It's crazy that my father even asked her to do that. I must have been two months old when she left. I can't imagine anyone telling me, you need to leave your child at two months. After we moved back to England, there were many times I went to visit Jamaica with my mom. But I feel I developed a closer connection to Jamaica as I got older, when I started to experience the country without my family. The only way to really get to know something is to have your own experience of it. That deepened my appreciation for the culture and for the fact that this is my heritage. This is where my mother came from, and her mother, and her mother. It's really amazing. 
Now I try to make it a point to go at least once a year. Ebony. Bridging that gap and passing those cultural traditions down as a first gen is obviously very important to you. Have you ever brought your daughter to Jamaica? Yes, I love seeing my daughter in Jamaica. She's not old enough to really understand that this is where part of her heritage comes from, but the way that she loves it there, and she's so happy going there, and the way she talks about it, that makes me really happy. Ebony, I love seeing how you interact with her. It's so intuitive, the way you're able to address her needs. It's powerful to witness. Even when my daughter is having a meltdown because she's not feeling well, like right now, it's so rewarding. It's so special, so divine. It's the most incredible thing I'll ever do in my life. Ebony. Ebony is traveling to the Caribbean in April to cover Jamaica Carnival. Have you ever been? I've never been to Jamaica Carnival. I've only been to Notting Hill Carnival in London. First of all, it was intense. The first day we went, we were like, wow, this is intense. And the second day we went, I brought my mom. She was parting the crowd like the Red Sea, pushing people out of the way. We turned up. We had a good time. Listen, I love to dance. I love to have fun. This is an excerpt from Ebony, the cover titled To D World, Jody Turner-Smith on her Jamaican roots and keeping the culture alive. Written by Jihan Forbes, Ebony, May 2023. The next article is titled, The Evolution of Black Studies Programs in the United States. Written by Alicia Camille, A-L-Y-C-I-A-K-A-M-I-L, Blavity, February 27, 2023. Becoming a Black Studies major and becoming immersed in aspects of your history is a relatively new concept. From learning the very beginnings of African civilization to the critical movements that have shaped our political sphere, our ability to gain this information has been a great opportunity. Though the origins of other liberal arts majors date as far back as the late 1800s, an official Black Studies program was not institutionalized until the late 1960s. This wasn't made possible until after decades of protests. We had to fight to get our history to be taught in schools. And with that, we experienced significant loss while doing so. Described by many names, African Studies, Black Studies, or Afriology, it's the study of Black people worldwide. Each of those subtopics hit specific geological standpoints. For instance, African diaspora studies focus on Black people displaced throughout the Americas. Black studies center more on Black Americans or African studies, which dive deep into African civilization pre-slavery. They all fall under humanities and social science, which is the study of not only a specific sector of people, but also the culture that surrounds them. Despite the different umbrella terms, they all work to achieve the same goal, undo the centuries of misrepresentation, miseducation, and overall ignorance that lead to a public misconstrued deception of our people. 
Doing so has brought many Black people to connect with their ancestral roots. A lot of historical moments that led up to Black studies becoming institutionalized in colleges and universities. Between 1945 and 1955, many moving pieces were happening in the government. There was a dire need for proper representation in our educational system. Brown versus Board occurred in 1954. It struck down segregated schools. The GI Bill paid for college tuition from many Black veterans too, not to mention the desegregation of other legal, systemic, and academic institutions. These historical moments increased Black people attending school and eventually finding themselves in college. With more Black people in schools, it became natural to question why there weren't any authentic Black history being taught in schools. Even now, in 2023, a whitewashed curriculum. Our only history about Black people being taught is slavery, which doesn't fully encompass all that it should. Since there are now Black people in the schools, Black history should be taught. These revelations matched with community organizing spawned from the Black Power Movement sparked civil unrest. Howard University staged a sit-in and ultimately seized the administrative buildings for four days straight between March 19th to 23 in 1968. One of their demands was that the history of African-American people would be added to the curriculum. Over a thousand students gathered to fight for justice and the future of their education. Many student-led groups were forming in this particular decade to combat the racist system. They sought to educate the community when those in power failed to do so. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee worked to fight against the injustices. In 1968, they merged with the Black Panther Party. At that point, they continued to provide myriad community services. They even started the Intercommunal Youth Institute through mutual aid services, newsletter distribution, and breakfast programs. It worked to provide Black students with the proper education they received in white-dominated institutions. People worked endlessly to ensure justice for Black people and a better future for our youth. At the same time, we had the Cold War going on and the McCarthy hearings and the formation of COINTELPRO, C-O-I-N-T-E-L-P-R-O. Eventually, this all led to the dismantling of these radically led groups. We lost many influential leaders. It became too dangerous to be known as a freedom fighter. With so many outside entities going against a white nationalist narrative, controlling what was taught throughout the states was necessary. At a cost, Black studies eventually were rolled out into colleges in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Many Black figures questioned the genuine intentions of the sudden interest in institutionalizing Black studies after many years of pushback. But it served as a win to the many lives lost and severed movements. Merritt Community College in Oakland, California, established the first organized Black Studies course in 1965 to 1966. San Francisco State University was approved for the first four-year program in 1967 to 
1968. Since then, the Black Studies major has gone in many different directions, adding new categories to be taught, and still has to face criticism for not being perceived as a valid enough major to go into. Our history has been through generations of obstruction, and even now, in current days, we're seeing our life's work being banned from different academic institutions. Our fight to honor those who have sacrificed to ensure we have the resources is to utilize them. You don't have to be a Black Studies major to take a class. See how to take one to fulfill a humanities or fine arts requirement. Our history can no longer be erased if we take the proper steps to learn. Black Studies has an extensive history, and this barely scratched the surface. With new movements arising and our access to social media to connect globally, we're getting ourselves ready to add more classes, have more discussions, and more importantly, learn from one another and our history. This article was titled, The Evolution of Black Studies Programs in the United States, written by Alicia Camille Blavity, February 27, 2023. The next article is titled, Why Autism Awareness Should Be Celebrated on Campus, written by Zada Lubby, Z-A-D-A-L-U-B-Y, Blavity, April 18, 2023. April signifies many things, the introduction into spring, an authorized hiatus from the monotony of college life, but most importantly, this month signifies autism awareness. Any time of the year is as good as this month to devote specialized attention to this group of people. But this time is explicitly a period we use to bring eyes to this matter in a digestible way for those who may be ignorant of the struggles people with autism may face. As stated by Discovery Therapy, according to the CDC, as of 2022, one in four children have been clinically recognized as having autism spectrum disorder. So it's important for people to be aware of what having autism entails. Holding affairs and programs dedicated to making people aware of life through the autistic lens may inspire people to get more involved. It can help extend their bandwidth to this community beyond the campus grounds. It will also create a more inclusive and comfortable space for those students who may be on the spectrum or feel as though they may have the disorder and have yet to be diagnosed. Many students may also reap the benefits of gaining an understanding of how they may be able to accommodate or offer necessary assistance to someone with autism that might be having a hard time due to experiencing auditory distress, or sensory overload. Another statistic provided by Discovery Therapy shows that about 40% of all children on the autistic spectrum are nonverbal. Information provided by Autism Speaks shows that everyday habits displayed by people on the spectrum of all ages include social communication challenges, such as abnormal gestures, lack of eye contact, exaggerated facial expressions, and heightened tone of voice. 
Other conduct may consist of repetitive body movements, repetitive motions with objects, and ritualistic behaviors like lining up things and repeatedly touching things in a set order. The development of these programs could also aid in students being better able to identify someone with autism based on several different behaviors, so they'll be equipped with the knowledge to respond appropriately. In the U.S., of the youth diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, the National Library of Medicine shows that about 34.7% of the overall figure of people living with the condition attend college. Though that percentage may seem pale compared to the number of people that go to college in North America every year, it's still enough to consider the next time you meet someone new while on campus. While autism manifesting differently in every person with the disorder and the number of cases climbing yearly, they may be on the spectrum. Discovery therapy provides statistics supporting that the ubiquity of autism has increased by 178% since 2000. In the U.S., one in every 150 people had autism, and as of 2022, one in every 100 people are diagnosed with the disorder. Autism awareness shouldn't be limited to just one month, but this April and the April to come could be used to kickstart broadening college students' horizons regarding their knowledge on the subject matter. This could be achieved by introducing various programs and events to the campus to raise awareness for those with autism. The positive consequences of holding such events on campus grounds are endless. From informing students on the expected behaviors someone may display if they have autistic spectrum disorder, so that they may be aware and able to assist if necessary to create a more inclusive safe space for those with autism. The bottom line is this should be part of every campus experience. Does your school hold any functions in honor of Autism Awareness Month? If so, how? This article was titled, Why Autism Awareness Should Be Celebrated on Campus, written by Zeta Lubby, Blavity, April 18, 2022. The next article is titled, AC Celebrates Black World War II Hero, Kansas Only Black World War II Medal of Honor recipient, P.F.C. Willie F. James Jr., W.I.L.L.Y., is remembered with honor. Written by Thomas White, The Voice, April 14, 2023. Private First Class Willie F. James Jr. finally got his hero's welcome home. A wreath in his honor was placed Friday at the Black Veterans Memorial at 12th and Paseo. A chaplain led a prayer before a 21-gun salute, and a trumpeter played taps. Then, a horseback color guard led a memorial procession of marching bands, firefighters, veterans, and Buffalo soldiers on motorcycles down Paseo to the Black Archives on 18th Street, all for P.F.C. Willie James, who was one of only seven Black 
World War II vets to receive the Medal of Honor, the U.S. military's highest decoration and the only one from Kansas City. This is a historic event, said onlooker Brian Wilson. It's something I wouldn't want to miss. It's long overdue. James was recognized for his bravery in capturing or killing 40 Nazi SSS groups. James died in combat in April 1945 from sniper fire while attempting to save his commanding officer. Due to bias and discrimination, it took until 1996 for him to be honored as a Medal of Honor recipient. James's only surviving family are nieces who donated his Medal of Honor to the Black Archives for Mid-America for display. There are no known photographs of PFC James, and for a time, it looked as though his story could have been lost to history. In the past, he was seen as a Black and therefore not worthy, said Lieutenant General Milford H. Beagle, Jr. But there's no caveat with a Medal of Honor. He's not a Black Medal of Honor recipient. He's a Medal of Honor recipient who will always be remembered as a hero. In 1996, the U.S. government recognized seven Black World War II veterans, including P.F.C. James, who had been unjustly denied the Medal of Honor. In response, in 1997, President Bill Clinton presented Valcenie, V-A-L-C-E-N-I-E, James, with her husband's Medal of Honor. It has taken more than 50 years, but P.F.C. James finally received recognition for his bravery. Generations to come can see his Medal of Honor on prominent display at the Black Archives of Mid-America, located at 1722 East 17th Terrace in Kansas City, Missouri. Wally F. James Jr. was born in Kansas City, Missouri on March 18, 1920, and grew up there as the only child of a widowed mother. He was drafted into the Army in September 1942, just before his marriage to his wife, Valsadi, and was recognized for his marksmanship and leadership during his training. On April 7, 1945, James's unit crossed the Wesser River, W-E-S-E-R, near Lippoldsberg, L-I-P-P-O-L-D-S-B-E-R-G, Germany. He was sent forward to scout the enemy position and made critical observations while pinned down by heavy fire for more than an hour. Despite the danger, James raced back to his company to report his observations. Undaunted, he volunteered to lead the attack on Lippoldsberg. As the men advanced, they drew fire from every direction, and SS troops emerged from the windows and doorways of the town. Platoon leader Lieutenant A.J. Sarabella, S-E-R-A-B-E-L-L-A, was gravely wounded, and James raced to his aid, intending to pull him to safety. Before he could act, James was struck and killed by German sniper fire. James's legacy lives on at the National World War II Museum and in the exhibition Fighting for the Right to Fight, African-American Experiences in World War II. He is buried in the Netherlands, 
in the Netherlands American Cemetery in Margrethen, where his grave and those of the other 8,300 Americans buried there are lovingly tended by the American Battle Monuments Commission, the Dutch people, and visitors who come year-round to pay their respects. This article is titled, KC Celebrates Black World War II Hero by Thomas White, The Voice, April 14, 2023. The next story is titled, Where Are All the Black American Baseball Players? Written by John Kellestand, C-E-L-E-S-T-A-N-D-L-M-A, The Voice, April 15, 2023. Often referred to as America's pastime, baseball holds a special place in the hearts of so many citizens in this country. But like many other professional sports leagues in America, baseball once conspired to keep the best African-American players from participating on the main stage. America's history of segregation, bigotry, and rage against its own Black citizen found no added barriers or roadblocks when it came to sports. In fact, sports presented a glaring stage for racism and later Jim Crow to assert its dominance over Black America before a national audience. Baseball made its best effort to keep its sacred diamond free of dark faces who could not possibly have the aptitude and fortitude to play such a complicated and highly skilled game. The National Association of Amateur Baseball Players rejected African-American membership in 1867, and in 1876, owners of the Professional National League adopted a gentleman's agreement to keep Black players out. Because of this, Rube Foster, considered by historians to have been the best African-American pitcher in the first decade of the 1900s, launched the Negro National League for Black players. This prompted the formation of another league called the Eastern Colored League in 1923, which then led to two circuits converging to play the World Colored Championship in 1924, continuing the annual series until 1927. These leagues and others later referred to as the Negro Leagues birthed the first great black baseball players such as Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston, and Walter Buck Leonard. Even the great Jackie Robinson, who broke the color line in Major League Baseball in 1947, got his start in the Negro Leagues playing for the Kansas City Monarchs. Legendary Black baseball players that came later on, such as Willie Mays, Bob Gibson, Ken Griffery Jr., G-R-I-F-F-E-Y, Ozzie Smith, Reggie Jackson, Barry Bonds, and Hank Aaron can all trace their opportunities to play America's sport back to the paths blazed by the amazing and resilient players of the Negro Leagues, many who never got to show all of America how talented folks of a darker hue inside the diamond. When you think of the struggle in addition to the enormous obstacles that obstructed pathways to success 
for eager and motivated black baseball players during those times, it is gut-wrenching to see the minuscule number of black American baseball players in today's games. On opening day in 1991, black American players made up 18% of all MLB rosters, compared to a paltry 7.2% on opening day of 2022. Not one American-born black player participated in the 2022 World Series matchup between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Houston Astros. The last time that happened was in 1950. It's very expensive today, says Corey Smith, a former professional baseball player selected by the Cleveland Indians in the 2000 MLB draft. With basketball, you just need a pair of sneakers. With football, most of the time the equipment is provided. But with baseball, a bat is $500, a decent glove is $250, and a pair of cleats is $100. Once you add in batting gloves and other accessories, you have almost spent $1,000 off top. My uncle, Michael Cummings, who was drafted in the sixth round of the 1969 draft by the Boston Red Sox, and led the AAA league in hitting percentages in 1973, says the lack of black players in Major League Baseball is intentional. I think it's designed like that, Cummings says. We don't have many places to play anymore. At one time, baseball was the main sport for blacks. It's unfortunate because it's the sport you can play the longest without getting hurt and make the most money. Like any other discipline or sport, that lacks diversity, specifically around black participants, it is difficult to recruit people when they don't see themselves represented in the first place. For years, basketball has been marketed as a hip sport that keeps its ear glued to black culture and hip hop music. There is never a dearth of black celebrities in the entertainment industry sitting courtside for both the regular season and playoff games in the NBA article was an excerpt taken from The Voice titled, Where Are All the Black American Baseball Players? Written by John Celestand, April 15th, 2023. That's all the time we have for the African American. My name is Rosemary Ongway. Thanks for joining me.